Hebrews 11, the almost eternal chapter as it seems to be. We'll keep pressing on. Let's pray and, uh, and then we'll start. Father, we pray that as we come again to your word today, that you would bless our time, that you would uh, illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm so aware that apart from you, that nothing here is accomplished. Apart from your work, our work is fruitless. So we pray for your wisdom, for your might, for your strength, for your sovereignty, for your goodness to be shone upon us through your word today. And as we gaze upon you, we might be transformed evermore into the image of your Son. His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Last time we finished off the story of Abraham. And Abraham has uh, been uh, going before us as an example of faith. And as we've said multiple times, we've been greatly encouraged that that faith has been a compromised faith. That this is not some perfect standard that we have to attain to, that Abraham um, again and again was compromised in his faith, though there was faith there. That again and again he believed, and yet at the same time he didn't fully believe. And that should encourage us, but it should not lead us to complacency, because we see that God dealt with him very firmly. It leads us on into chapter 12 very nicely to the topic of discipline. And uh, I hope already you can see how chapters 11 and 12 kind of follow nicely in sequence. That when we see these stories of faith and those who needed a little strong encouragement to grow in faith, that that leads nicely into the concept of discipline in chapter 12. But Abraham got there in the end and we saw last time with the sacrifice of Isaac, the attempted sacrifice of Isaac, that there was in that moment no way out. That the level of faith was required to believe that he could father a child even though he was old. To believe that Sarah would be the mother despite her age. And he failed at those tests. But yet here, the only solution as he could see it to a sacrifice Isaac was a resurrection. And yet his trust in the promises of God was such by that point that he was able to believe that God would do that rather than his word not coming to pass. And so as we complete Abraham, we pick up now then today in verse 20 and we, uh, we look at the calling, um, so the blessing of the sons in verses 20 and 21. By faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith Jacob when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Here we have the, uh, the faith being exercised in the blessing of the sons. Firstly, Isaac blessing his sons. And secondly, Jacob blessing essentially his grandchildren, the sons of Joseph. 
Let's have a look at these then. Firstly, we have the, the faith of Isaac. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Again, in chapter 11, we once again are faced with messy faith. Messy faith. Because if you recall the story of, of, uh, of Isaac and the blessings being put upon uh, Jacob and upon Esau, that there was a degree of trickery involved. Now, um, I did think about spending the entire sermon on these two verses and going back and spending a lot more time in Genesis, but I think we need to keep moving. So I shall um, presume that you know the story to some degree, and I shall just recount briefly if you don't, but it was, it was uh, Jacob who was second born, and the blessings of the firstborn, only begotten, as we saw in the old English, the one and only, the unique son, the chosen son, as is properly rendered, that those blessings would belong to Esau, and that Jacob, uh, mostly through trickery, got his uh, blinded father to put the blessings upon him. So what then do we make of this verse? How is it that Jacob, uh, sorry, that Isaac, who's at the end here, is, is blinded, can barely see. Jacob's putting on fake hair on his body to try and convince his dad, no, really, it's Esau. Yeah, Dad, it's Esau. Trust me. Feel, feel my hair, Dad. You know, pretending he's got an extra dose of testosterone in him or something, you know. And, and you have this story of total deceit. And here, we're led to believe, oh, Isaac was a man of faith. Look how he blessed his son Jacob. And it's like, I remember that story. I'm not sure that's quite how it went. So what do we, what do we take from this? Because this, is, this to me is harder. It was hard enough to, to come and look at the, the faith of Abraham, that mighty man of faith, who, you know, who, who gave his, his wife over to another man so he wouldn't get killed, who, who said, no, 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 I, don't worry, God, I've got a son. It's not possible for me to, to have a son with Sarah. She's too old. Let's just use Ishmael. That great man of faith. And, and here it's even harder. How is this the faith of Isaac? And I think the answer is this. That when we trust God, we may not be in control, but God always is. Because it's a reminder to us, this story, that when what Jacob did in this, so Isaac did in this situation, and we'll, we'll talk more about the Jacob Esau situation because it's referenced for us specifically if you want to look ahead in chapter 12. So we'll get to that particular issue. Um, but here, what Isaac is doing is he is doing what he thinks is the right thing to do. He's not aware that he's giving the blessing to Jacob. He thinks he's giving the blessing to Esau. So what is he doing? He's being faithful. He's doing what he's supposed to do. And God is still in control. Despite everything, God is still in control. It's a really hard lesson for us to learn. Because one of the things that exposes our sinful pride is our desire to be in control of things. And you say, well, I, I, you know, I don't always want to be in control. You say, okay, but you don't want to be cheated, do you? 
You don't want to have someone deceive you. You don't want to have someone pull the wool over your eyes. You don't want to be robbed. Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. He stole the blessings. He deceived. Now, you don't want that to happen, do you? But can you trust God to be in control even then? That's the trick. And I think that when it talks about Isaac having faith in verse 20, we, we, all we can presume from that is that Isaac is doing what he was supposed to do, that he was trusting God. And what actually happened was completely different to what he thought he was doing. He thought he's blessing Esau, and in fact, what he's doing is he's blessing Jacob. And there he is, completely blindsided, pun intended. And he's completely blindsided by that, and yet God's sovereign purposes have not been affected at all. When sickness comes, when trials come, financial difficulties, when you're tricked, when you're cheated, when people treat you badly, God is still in control. And what's our job in the midst of that? Like Isaac, it's just to do what is right, just to be obedient to God and trust God with the consequences. And so we then come to Jacob, who when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Now this is a, a little more tricky, we should probably turn there, so if you want to turn to Genesis with me, Genesis 48. Genesis 48, we read, and after this Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill, so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me and loosened the other, and the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples that will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Again, promises of God. Now they believe by faith that these will be fulfilled. A lot of Christians today know that these people did because they learned to have faith. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And then the blessings are, are given later on. Now what's he doing here? Is he, He's saying, I'm going to pinch your sons. Not, not exactly. What's happening, he says, in the same way that Reuben and Simeon are my sons, then your sons will have blessings as if they were mine. And often in Israel's history, we see the tribes being divided, and you see tribes of Ephraim and tribes of Manasseh. 
you know, what's that? They're not sons of uh, Jacob. Well, the answer is, is that's often done because they are like tribes because they were, as Jacob says, like his. Part of the reason for this, and I don't want to get too distracted, but part of the reason for this is found a little later. Um, when he comes to bless his own sons as his final act in verse uh, chapter 49, verse 3, he starts with the firstborn, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. In other words, you're the firstborn, you're the one that gets the privilege, and you're strong and you're powerful, but verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it, he went up to my couch. The first four blessings that were due to Reuben were lost because of the sin that he committed in Genesis 35. And uh, I don't want to get distracted there, but you can have a look at that another time. But um, in, in that whole, sorry, did I say 35? Let me have a look. Let me read to you briefly there. Um, yeah. In Genesis 35, verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Because of that sin, he loses a lot of his blessings, and a lot of those birthrights go to the grandchildren. In other words, long story short, too long, didn't read as it were. Because of Reuben losing his blessings, there's space for Manasseh and Ephraim to receive blessings. And when we look in chapter 48 at those blessings, Ephraim is given blessings in particular. Now here, it's deliberate. There's no deceit or anything that here Jacob is aware. He's aware of the sin of Reuben, he's aware that he's blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, and he's aware that although Ephraim is the younger of the two, he's aware that he gives the greater blessings to Ephraim. And again, what are we seeing in this section? We're seeing that people are doing what is right. They're doing what God's called them to do. In the first example, Isaac's unaware. In the second example, Jacob is aware. In both examples, things aren't done as they would be expected to be done, because in both examples, the firstborn doesn't get the birthright. And what is true through all of it? God is sovereign, and God is good. Again, it's just this constant reminder to us that we can only operate with the light that we're given. And despite our blindness, despite the darkness, despite our ignorance, if we are faithful, then God is glorified through that and he will remain in control in all of these situations. And we finally, we end the patriarchs with Joseph in verse 22. By faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. You'll find that in Genesis chapter 50, verse 25. We won't turn there, we're going to keep moving. But basically, way, way back, we read it last time, in Genesis 15, when uh, God uh, gives the uh, Abrahamic covenant, 
that he says in Genesis 15 and verses 13 and 16, he speaks of this period of time that is coming where the exodus will, will happen, when there will be Egyptian persecution and God will set them free in the future. It's been prophesied. They know it's going to happen. These people have become people of faith. They've learned the hard way to trust God. And so they know the exodus is happening. And so Joseph says, when we leave Egypt, take my bones. Now why is that? I don't think we want to read too much into the necessity of bones. I don't think we want to draw too many conclusions regarding burials and cremations from this. I think we simply need to recognize this that Joseph knew that there was a future for him in the land, even after his death. With the sacrifice of Isaac, then we have at that point a trust in God to the point of resurrection. God has said, this is your land. God has said that this will happen, and it will happen. It seems bizarre to me the Christians would say there's no future for Israel in the land when Joseph specifically, by saying, take my bones out, there's a future in the land, he specifically saw a future for himself in that land. And then the book of Hebrews particularly quotes that, references that, and says that this was an act of faith. They trusted God in the things that couldn't be seen. Now we come to Moses. Verse 23, Bruce read for us this morning from Exodus 2. We have the background then in that story. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, let's just deal with some obviously troublesome things as is translated here, okay? Oh, you're killing all the children, are you? Well, you can kill the rest of them, but this one is particularly beautiful. So I think we'll hang on to this one, because this one's going to win all the baby photo competitions. This is a real cute baby. Let's hang on to this one. That isn't what's happening. There are plenty of decent words available for the word beautiful. And they're not uh, for, uh, to, to express the concept of being beautiful. Um, and none of those words are used here. This word, I think, in being translated beautiful, it is a little misleading. The older versions would say goodly. I'm not sure that's even a word anymore, but um, it gives you an idea that perhaps it's not quite the same thing. Funnily enough, this word is only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here, it's also used in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, just about to get stoned, is, is basically saying the same thing about Moses, that he was this goodly, beautiful child. So what does it mean? I think more than anything else, it simply means that they recognized that he was chosen. That there was an understanding that this one was special, that this one was set apart, that this one had God's hand upon him. And that's why I have Bruce read to us this morning from Exodus chapter two, that they saw this child and they saw that there was something special about him. And here in this verse before us in Hebrews, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Well, that's not Moses' faith, is it? It's not like, hey folks, I'm three months old. Do you, 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 you know, do you want to hide me? 
That's not what's going on here at all. It's the faith of the parents who said, no, this child must be preserved. This child must be preserved. Now, does that mean that the parents had some sort of prophetic insight and that they knew that this child had a special place in the, in the providence of God and that because of that, this child had to be preserved? Some people would say, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tentatively err on the side and say, I'm not convinced. I think these parents just said, you're not having my kid. Because I think any one of us would do the same. All the babies are being killed, and you've now got a baby. What are you going to do? You're going to do whatever you can do. You're going to hide, you're going to lie, you're going to cheat, you're going to do whatever you can do to protect that baby because you're a parent and that's what parents do, right? So that, I think, is what's going on. Now, how does that flow in our context? I think that flows very well because, again, we have people with very limited knowledge simply trying to do what's right and to trust God with the rest. And so there is this idea, I think, that's being conveyed in this, in this word beautiful, that the parents just saw in this child, this must be preserved. And that that concept was also shared by God. This child will be preserved because I have plans for it. And so it is through faith and again, I just don't see any reason here to read into this and say that God said to the parents, Hey parents, Moses is really important. You must protect him. Or let the other kids die. But you must. I don't think that's what's going on. I read it far more naturally. That the parents were simply doing what was right and trusting God with everything that would follow from that act. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. If they were seen to be keeping the child, they themselves would be put to death. They risked their own lives for the life of their child. Again, we see parenting being done, and we see a faith in God. Now, let's just, let's just be very clear. I don't think they had faith that we're going to do what's right and we won't get killed. They didn't have some special insight that, oh, it's going to all be okay. What they did is they had faith, if we get caught and we get killed, so be it. We've done the right thing. That's the faith. Faith is, is not about saying, I'm going to make the right decision about my, my, in, in, in my workplace. I'm going to do the right thing at work with my job, with my life, with my living situation, with, with whatever it is. I'm going to do the right thing and God will make it all work out. In the sense that we'll all be having, you know, there'll be roses blossoming and everything will be wonderful and we'll all be singing hallelujah this time next week. If, if that's what you think faith is about, you're a few thousand miles away from Joel Osteen's church down in Houston. That's not what we believe. What we believe is that we make the right decision and that sometimes that makes things worse, humanly speaking. A lot worse. 
Sometimes it even results in our death. But we do it anyway because God is sovereign and God is good. And if I live, God is sovereign and He's good and we rejoice that I've lived. And if we die, if I die, then at my funeral, you come up and you say, God is sovereign and God is good in my stead. Because He is. And we continue to do what's right. That's what's going on here. These parents had faith, and so they did what's right, and they trusted God with the, with the circumstances and the consequences and the ramifications. Fortunately for them, it was good news, humanly speaking, as well. By faith, Moses, verse 24, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Something that happened at about 40 years of age, that there he was, raised as an Egyptian, he realized of his Jewish heritage, and he chose in the whole of this, these goings on with regards to uh, the Passover, and, and, and particularly, I think, at this point, with regards to being associated with the Jewish people who were being so badly persecuted. He chose to be associated with them and not with the Egyptians. Look at verse 25, this is powerful. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There's a verse that would be good to just stick above your mantelpiece. Just, just write it up and pin it to your fridge or, or something like that. The older versions here talk about sin for a season. The fleeting pleasures of sin. You know, there are people who think, you know what, I can do this. I can, I can live the way I want now. And then afterwards I'll go back to living for God. I'll just compromise on this one issue and, and, and then we'll walk as we should after that. The book of Hebrews, if nothing else, has spoken of the consequence of sin. And what Moses did in choosing to be associated with the Jewish people is he chose to be associated with people who were being, who were enslaved, who were being maltreated, who were being abused. And he said, that's my camp. That's my tribe. That's my people. Why? Because we're the people of God and we're under the covenant of God. And I'm not going to choose the Egyptian people where I am part of the royal family, where I have a life of privilege, where I have a life where I can be waited on, where a life where I can have all the luxuries that I would ever need. I have all of that available and yet I choose to be maltreated. I choose to be associated with these people. Why? The only clue in the text is, is that they are the people of God, of God, of the covenant. We are so distracted by the fleeting pleasures of sin. We're distracted by what we see, what we can touch, what we can taste, what we can, what we can feel. We're, we're distracted by what is immediate, what is in front of us, what stands before us next week, next month, next year. And there's all distractions because what matters is this, that we are the people of God. 
that He is our God, that He has chosen us, that He has covenanted with us, that we are His, that He is ours. And so we go wherever He tells us to go. We do what He tells us to do. And we live with the consequences. And Moses right here is the example in that he had everything in life that he could possibly want. How easy is it for us as Christians to get distracted by the same things as the world? We want to be healthy. We want to win the lottery when it gets to however much the, the big record for Powerball is. You know, we, we want the same things as the world so often. Why? Why do we want these things? What is it that attracts us to them? Is the answer not comfort? Is the answer not immediacy? Is the answer not a lack of faith? And the example of Moses speaks against that and it goes on. And it said he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, I'll talk about the weird thing about Christ in a moment. Can we just get the big picture here, okay? The issue was not that Moses said, do you know what? I don't care about rewards. I don't care about the luxuries of Egypt. I don't care about all the privilege that I have as a royal subject, a royal family member, rather. I don't, I don't, I don't care about the rewards that come to me as being part of this Egyptian family. That's not what he said. He said there's better rewards following God. It's not to do with us being, you know, we're, we're not the, we're not like the, the, the medieval Catholics where, you know, we need to, you know, flagellate ourselves, take the whip and say, yes, I've sinned, yes, I've sinned, you know. That we, we sort of punish ourselves and, and we have to, you know, oh, there should be no reward for me, dirty world that I am. God has given you ample rewards. The problem is, is that the devil's fool's gold is right before your eyes and the glories of heaven are a little further back and we're we're idiots quite frankly we look at what's right in front of our nose and we don't have the patience to wait for the greater rewards and the greater glory and that's what moses that what Moses did, he saw greater rewards. When we come to meet Moses in the kingdom, there's going to be a lot of us that want to meet him, right? There'll be more people wanting to meet Moses than meet you or I, that's for sure, right? Greater rewards. How, how pathetic, how pathetic having some slave put grapes in your mouth. Having a, a comfortable existence in, in the royal palace. How pathetic that is in light of the fact that Moses is formerly the author of the first five books of the Bible and that every Christian and Jew knows his name. And a few others beside. This is far greater reward. And I think it's important that we see that he wasn't, he wasn't, Casting aside reward, he just saw a better one. 
He just saw something better. It's, it's kind of like if someone says to you, you know, look, here, here's a bag with, with, with $10,000 in it. You can take that bag or you can have this other bag. Like those kind of game shows where they're choosing which box you're going to have and stuff. If you know, if you know that there's vastly more in the other box, then you will cast aside seemingly ridiculous amounts of money that might change your life because you know there's more there. So don't be all super spiritual and say, well, I just don't want to have any of that kind of blessing because, you know, I just don't need blessings in my life. I'm happy to be miserable for the Lord. Rather, we say, no, I'm casting aside that reward, that blessing, because it's earthly, it's temporary, it's limited, and there's blessings that God will give to me that will last for all eternity and are of far greater value. Guys, we've got to shift our perspective to a heavenly one, to an eternal one. Let's look then at this little awkward phrase here. He considered the reproach of Christ. What did he know about Christ? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Well, there's a whole bunch of different possibilities here. Firstly, I think we need to understand that the word Christ is not Jesus' surname. <coughs> It sounds a bit silly, I know, but a lot of people think, well, Jesus Christ, so, you know, it's, no, 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 Jesus Christ means Jesus the Messiah, and the Messiah literally means the anointed one, the anointed one. So what it's saying here is this, it's saying he considered the reproach of the anointed one. Who is the anointed one here? There's three possibilities, and <laughs> I've thought about this. And I'm not even going to give you a conclusion, I'm just going to tell you the options, because it's really difficult and I don't know. Sorry about that. <laughs> let, me, let me give you the options. The first option is simply this, that the anointed one here is the Messiah, is the Christ. That Moses spoke in Deuteronomy of, uh, of the prophet that was going to come after him, the great prophet. And certainly he was aware of a messianic promise coming through from Genesis 3 and on. And there's no doubt that Moses is aware of a, of a Messiah coming. And it's quite possible that he's, it, what the text is saying here is that Moses recognized that though he was an important person in Egypt, that there was one coming who was much greater and he would suffer reproach for him. That's quite possible. And that is your typical answer. That's probably what I'm supposed to say. The problem that I have with that answer is it doesn't seem to flow contextually to me. It doesn't seem to be um, what, the, what the passage is saying in context. The other po another possibility is that the anointed one here is Moses himself. He was the anointed one. When we talk about Jesus being the Messiah and being the anointed one, when you have the prophecies about the coming Messiah, it talks about how the Spirit of God will be upon him. That's why it was so important that, um, that's Isaiah 61, I think it is, and that's why it's so important that when Jesus came and he had his baptism, that the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove, and there's invisible, I don't know how you picture that event, don't picture doves. Not doves. There were no birds involved in that scene. Like a dove. Analogies. Not like a stone. 
drop a stone, boom, you know, not like that, like a dove, gently down, right? But no doves involved. But there was a visible manifestation of the presence of God so that people could see that this is the one that the Spirit of God is upon. This is the one. But who else was the Spirit of God upon? Moses. Moses had the Holy Spirit, completely different to the rest of the people of that era. He, the Spirit of God was with them in the tabernacle, but Moses himself was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So Moses, in a sense, was the anointed one. Now, if that's the case, then the text here is simply saying, he went from a place of privilege where he was a privileged person in the Egyptian economy, as it were, to having one of the responsibility for the Jewish people. And there was a reproach that came with that because he's now representing the Jewish people. So in that sense, it could be Moses himself. And the third option is in Psalm 89, verses 50 and 51, that Israel is called God's anointed one because the Spirit of God was within Israel, that they were the chosen people. And therefore, again, contextually, that fits a lot better. Whether you have Moses or you have Israel, he is being associated with Israel. That is the context of the passage. And as such, there's reproach that comes with that. So I, I tend to err uh, towards maybe the Moses or the Israel interpretation, rather than it referring to the Messiah. But either way, let's focus on the main point of the passage, which is this that he had everything he could see privilege-wise, and he chose, he chose the, what is humanly speaking, the worst option. He chose to be associated with people who were enslaved. He chose to be associated with the losing side, so to speak, because of his faith in God. Verse 27 is where it gets even trickier, <laughs> as if it wasn't enough already. Verse 27, by, fa uh, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I have Bruce read from Exodus chapter 2 today. I'm just going to read to you one verse again, verse 14. He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Did you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. <laughs> so, so when you read Exodus, Moses has killed the guy, he's afraid, and so he flees. And then you read Hebrews, and Moses, he, he, he left, but he didn't, it wasn't because of fear. He left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured a seeing him who is invisible. How do we reconcile that? Good question. If you want to let me know, that would be really helpful. No, I... <laughs> My best understanding of this, and by the way, this is one of those classic things in scripture where you read 10 commentaries and you get at least 12 different answers. So um, my best understanding of this, my, my best crack at this, as it were, is simply this, that it is associated contextually. And again, whenever you've got a verse that as a standalone doesn't make sense to you, read the verses around it. The answer, the clue is normally in the context. 
And what we're seeing in this story of Moses as it develops in Hebrews 11, what we're seeing is that it is his association with the Jewish people that is leading to him being persecuted. It is his association with the Jewish people that brings reproach. It's his association with the Jewish people that is his act of faith. And therefore, I think that what it's saying is this, is that if he did not associate with the Jewish people, he would not have to be afraid of, of Pharaoh. He, doesn't, he wouldn't have to be afraid. He could just go and sit in the palace and not have to worry about it. But he associated himself with the Jews. He stuck up for a Jewish man who was being beaten, and then he came to his defense. And as a result of that, he got himself into a situation where there was fear. Now, do not think for one split second that the writer of Hebrews suddenly is like, yeah, this makes sense to me. Oh, you know, oh yeah, Exodus 2. Darn it, I forgot. He is completely and utterly aware of Exodus chapter 2 and verse 14. Completely aware. And he uses the word afraid or fear here very deliberately. And I think this is the reason why. What he's saying is, is that Moses said, do you know what? I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to be with the people of God. I am going to take the right side. I am going to do the right thing. And he knew that in doing that there was danger ahead. He knew in doing that there was approach ahead. And do you know what? He looked fear in the face and he laughed at fear and he said, yeah, I'm going to do it. And then a little bit later on he was petrified. That's encouraging, isn't it? We make these decisions in faith. We decide that we're going to serve God. And I've said this again and again, I just have this constant like picture in my head of, of when I was teaching at a Bible college and these students, you know, late teens, early twenties, Lord, we're going to follow you wherever you go in worship. And I'm there just older, wiser, and a whole bunch more cynical, thinking, okay, we'll see. We'll see. And many of those who raised their hands and said, Lord, we're going to follow you. They're not following him anymore. Many of them are. All of them have been challenged. And all of them have feared. But at that time, where they said, I am going to follow, they didn't fear. They knew the hardships might come, but they didn't fear. And they said, I'm going to follow. And then later, when the hardships came, and later, when the trials came, and later, when everything started to fall apart for them, then they feared. So, when you say, I'm going to live for you, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. Are there any more scary words in Scripture than that? I'm going to deny myself. Put aside what I want. Put aside my comfort, my desires, my will. And I'm going to take up my cross. Was there ever a greater picture of that time of suffering, of sacrifice? And I'm going to go and follow Jesus. That's scary. And if you can put aside that fear, and if you can see, now let's look at this text closely, him who is invisible. Then you can put aside fear and you can say, I am going to do that. 
but that does not make you immune to fear later on. You will be challenged, you will fear, you will have trials and struggles as you try and live out that commitment, but live it out anyway. And that leads us then to verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And it comes to the picture of salvation. The picture of salvation. D.A. Carson tells the story of two Jewish fellows. Hypothetical. A parable, if you like. Two Jewish fellows who have got to put their blood on Passover night. Kill the lamb, put the blood on the door frame. And one of them says, I put the blood up, that's it, perfectly safe, absolutely fine. Blood's up, angel of death is going to pass over, we're all good. Goes to bed, sleeps like a baby. Somebody else kills the lamb, applies the blood, says, man, I hope this works. I really hope this works. Doesn't sleep a wink all night. Sits in the chair in the room where his firstborn son is, desperately hoping and praying that his life doesn't go that very night. Waiting and watching. Two very different models of faith, would you not agree? And yet both families would experience the mercy of God as the angel of death passed over their houses that night. Is that not a picture of all that we've seen in Hebrews 11? Good faith, strong faith, weak faith, imperfect faith, but faith nonetheless. And faith in God that he will keep his promises. And his promises indeed he will keep. If you've trusted Christ, if you've trusted the blood of Christ to cover your sins, if you have trusted Christ so that judgment will pass over you, then you've made the, the act of faith that is sufficient for eternity for you. That doesn't mean you won't doubt. It doesn't mean you won't wobble. It doesn't mean you won't struggle. But it does mean this. Let me end by reading a little bit of Romans. <coughs> and we'll, I was going to finish with the last verse, but we'll leave that for next time. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you've trusted Christ, 
you can trust God. And so he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God? Is it God who justifies? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who, was, who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all the people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you that you can be trusted in all things. May we walk by faith. May we get our eyes off the visible, get our eyes on the invisible, see the greater reward that is there before us. See those who have struggled before, those who have feared before, those who have compromised before, and know that there is a way forwards where faith will conquer. May we be people of faith.